fans need to understand why fans are fans because that elemental connection that consumers have to this thing that they care so passionately about and invest so much time, money, emotion in is the oxygen to the whole sports marketing and sponsorship world. The more brands understand exactly why consumers care, the easier it is for them to create activations and communications that tap into that rich emotional territory that exists between fans and the, the sport or music or cause that they care so passionately about. Simon Wardle is Octagon's chief strategy officer and my go-to when I need to know why fans are fans of different sports, entertainment, and lifestyle verticals. And you can hear his passionate plea in the opening about the need of brands to study their audiences and what makes them tick. In the pod, we chat about the differences between the NFL, MLB, soccer, music, international, local, and gaming fan bases. Which ones care about the talent and others where the team and sense of belonging matters most. We also talk about the relationship between MMA and boxing and their fans, and which traditional sports fan is most similar to esports. I think you'll be fascinated by Simon's answer. I was, and I was not expecting it at all. We dig deeper into fans that focus on a sense of belonging versus nostalgia, and the differences between male and female fans. I learn something every time I listen to Simon. Enjoy. Fantasy is a fascinating ecosystem because what's happened is you've created a new sport and you've created a new type of fan. Um, you know, when you look at what drives and has driven the incredible success of the NFL and college football, it's all about the tribalism. It's all about that sense of belonging in your team beating their team and reveling in that and celebrating those rivalries and those traditions and and having it in part define who you are as a person. And that's historically been, you know, the, the beauty of sports is that sense of belonging, whether it's, you know, college football fans in Alabama or uh, soccer fans over in Europe. It's part of your self-identification is, is who your team is. And fantasy is turning that model on its head in the sense that it now becomes about me and my team. And it literally is your team. It's a team that you've drafted. It's the team that you are backing uh, in your league amongst your friends or peer group or whomever you're competing against. And the reason for you watching the games now is a very different reason. It's now no longer about my team beating your team. It's about my players beating your players. And that goes across you know, every game on a weekend. And it's, from an engagement perspective, all of a sudden, all games matter. And um, it, it's just a very different dynamic, and it's a very different type of fan. And oftentimes, it's fans who aren't necessarily traditional, avid NFL fans who all of a sudden have become ultra-engaged in every NFL game simply because they want to see how their fantasy team does relative to whoever they happen to be playing that weekend. It's an interesting difference there because I, in my mind I think, hey, if I'm a brand and I want to go reach a football fan, well, fantasy seems to be top of mind because of just the the rabid interest. But as you're suggesting yep. here, that's not necessarily 
a traditional football fan. No, and you know, I saw a stat over the weekend where I think it's twenty five percent of male professionals are in at least one fantasy league this football season. So I mean, this is this is no longer a niche activity. This is totally mainstream, and you know, it just to your point about brands just presents yet another way to engage with traditional football fans, but potentially, um, you know, extending that reach to fans who may not necessarily be the super avid NFL fans or super avid college football fans, yet are very invested in, in their fantasy team. Is there a demographic difference between a fantasy fan and or a psychographic difference between a fantasy fan and a traditional fan, be it age, gender, income, or any other, I guess, facets? Yeah, I mean, again, from a brand perspective, that fantasy audience is extremely appealing. It skews younger, it skews more white-collar and educated and more disposable income, slightly more male. Um, Those tend to be all the kinds of attributes from a demographic perspective that a lot of brands are targeting. So, Again, it, it, it's, it, it represents a great opportunity for brands to connect to um, their, their target consumer. It, it's also interesting because you're now playing on the periphery of, of, of betting, which mm. um, you know, is, is clearly, you, know, you just have to turn on an, an, an English Premier League game to see the, the ubiquity of, of betting brands there. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see over the next three, four, five years, how legislation or what restrictions are placed on, on betting. Because, again, that, that fantasy uh, player is, is clearly predisposed to, to engage in, uh, in, in sports betting. So it, it's going to be interesting to see um, what those brands end up doing um, in, the, in the near near future, as, as betting becomes potentially a, a very big part of uh, the the U.S. sports landscape. So you touched on the Premier League. So American soccer, worldwide football. Talk to me about the different types of fans, or the different. Uh, I, I know fans aren't always in one bucket. I mean, you mentioned before from American football sense of belonging on one and fantasies, me and my team, but. Are there different types of fans in soccer? Absolutely. I mean, you know, when we've looked at soccer fans around the world, it's it's the world's game, but the role that soccer has played from a societal perspective, depending on what part of the world you are in, has had profound impact on uh, why fans are fans of, of the beautiful game. You know, you look at markets in Europe and South America where, you know, you're a fan of a team from cradle to grave and it's it's just an ever-present part of, of your existence. Uh, and it's very tribal and, you know, it it, it is uh, something that is represents a very 
strong emotional connection between fans and teams, but can also, again, if we think from a brand perspective, those very strong connections can be divisive as well. You can easily alienate a, uh, a whole group of consumers if you, as a brand, are a highly visible sponsor of a particular team that uh, a lot of consumers might not necessarily be fans of that team. In fact, might be at the very opposite end of that spectrum. So uh, there's a watch out there in those mature football markets. And then you look at emerging markets like you know Africa and Asia, where um, it's a bit of a land grab from a... Um, if we start thinking about the global brands, you know, the, the Barcelona, the Real Madrid, the Manchester United, um, you, you know, you're trying to bring those new fans who through technology now have access to all of those European games and um, you are reaching a whole new um, continent in, in some cases of, of fans of European soccer. So, again, understanding that the dynamics there are not necessarily a cradle-to-grave relationship and perhaps are, are driven much more by those star players. And, you know, I think some of the signings that you've seen, going back to David Beckham, you know, AC Milan, PSG, the, the incremental revenue that they saw driven by replica jerseys in, in Asia, America, around the world, uh, in part uh, was the reason for them signing, you know, these marquee players because they know it can build their brand uh, into into a, a globally relevant uh, property from a from a rights holder perspective, and then you get to emerging markets like the U.S. and, and Australia where it's much more participation driven. There's you know these robust youth soccer um, networks here in the U.S. as an example. And the connection to the game oftentimes is, you know, soccer was your first love. It was the first sport that you played competitively growing up. And, you know, whereas 20, 30 years ago, you got to high school and then your love of soccer got replaced by basketball or baseball or football because those are the sports on television. And those were, you know, if you're a talented athlete, those were the opportunities to potentially go to college and get a scholarship scholarship or um, just uh, if you're really good, potentially have the opportunity to have a career. Now you see that with soccer here in the U.S. And, um, you know, I think by virtue of that different historical connection that you have growing up with the sport, you've got very different emotional connections to the sport. And, you know, one of the things I love um, about the U.S., having grown up in England, is uh, the the pa the strength of the women's game over here, and the fact that you have millions of uh, female soccer fans who grew up playing the sport from an early age and and appreciate the skill and technique involved, and you know every women's World Cup that comes along, I think you're just seeing the interest in women's soccer grow and grow, which is you know, fantastic from my perspective, and you know just helps build the sport that that I love and um, you know it, again if we think about from a brand perspective you know football now or soccer now offers an opportunity to engage with you know those moms those daughters 
who've all played the sport. It's now an intergenerational connection point and and passion that that brands can tap into. So it's it's not all about the male eighteen to thirty four anymore. It's it's much more of a a gender neutral platform that again maybe historically it wasn't so much. And I think. Again, when you start to think about the the fans and what drives fandom, um, you know, even things like the NFL represent a great platform for reaching moms because Sunday afternoons represents one of the few opportunities during the week where she can get her whole family together in one room, and you know, there are. Eagles household or a Cowboys household or a Broncos household and that sense of um, belonging hmm. extends from that immediate family to to that bigger um, fan base of, of, of that NFL team and it provides mum with a way to create these you know, family legacy moments so you know, for me, that's what's exciting about sponsorship is is all the creative ways you can use it to to engage consumers across across a broad spectrum of, of demographics and, and lifestyles and life stages. Two two nuggets in there that I find pretty interesting. One, the sense of belonging is no lo- is not just the team as as you first said, but also extends to sense of belonging within a family unit. And then two, when you talked about European football. And you mentioned the cradle to grave. Maybe that will be American soccer on the women and the girl side. And the, the kids that are growing up now that are three, four, five, ten teenagers, maybe they'll have that same uh, interest as you're talking about from the European uh, men's side. So that's, that's interesting. I want to go back to something you said about, uh, you started to talk about it when talking about global football or soccer of why fans are fans because I think it's critical for a brand or a rights holder, a team, a league, um, or even the talent themselves if they want to engage with their fan base, increase their fan base, retain their fan base, they need to understand why a fan is a fan. And I know I've heard you talk for years for in baseball, as an example, the power of nostalgia. And I'm sure in, in some sports, athlete affinity um, or even in music or entertainment, gaming, you know, talent may be more key than team or nostalgia. So talk about some of those other, I guess, traits or themes in, in some uh, sports or entertainment that really are distinct based on the category. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to the most fundamental building block of of, of sponsorship, uh, you know, brands need to understand why fans are fans because that elemental connection that consumers have to this thing that they care so passionately about and invest so much time, money, emotion in is is the oxygen to the whole sports marketing and sponsorship world. I mean, the more brands understand exactly why consumers care, the more, the easier it is for them to create activations and communications that tap into that 
rich emotional territory that exists between fans and the, the sport or music or cause that they care so passionately about. So, you know, understanding, you know, not surprisingly, you know, how important uh, team and nostalgia is to baseball fans is is important. You know, it's... I always like to cite the the fact that the first priceless commercial Mastercard ever ran was about a son taking his, uh, sorry, about a father taking his son to a baseball game, and that priceless life experience that is the first time you take your child to a ballpark. Um, some perhaps more surprising uh, connections are, you know, when you look at something like NASCAR and you figure out that. Actually, why fans are fans in NASCAR has not so much to do with cars, not so much to do with racing, not so much to do with wrecking. <laughs> it's about a human connection to their driver <laughs> and understanding how important that relationship is to your driver uh, takes you in some very different and uh, much more relevant uh, direction when you're trying to engage with those NASCAR fans who who love that sport. You talked about music. Um, it's fascinating. You know, we've done focus groups with old sports fans across, I don't know, 20, 25 different sports here in the U.S. And then you do, and you hear similar themes. Obviously, golf fans, why they care about golf is much more different it's very different to uh, hockey fans, which is different to NASCAR fans again. But one of the fascinating things is when you do focus groups among music fans, it is a completely different lexicon. It's different language. It's different words that you hear. And it's all about uh, soul and um, this ability for music to... Um, penetrate your inner psyche and 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 have the ability to um, have. It's just fascinating. It was just fascinating for me to hear hmm. how many times that word "soul" came up during music music focus groups that we do with fans. It it is just a completely different relationship uh, or different role that the passion for music plays in people's lives and the reason why people have such strong connections to music is, is very different to sports and again it's important to understand uh, the nuanced differences depending on the type of music in terms of what those key emotional connections are so again when I think from a brand perspective how do you take advantage of this uh, very strong emotional connections that consumers have to music or sport or cause or uh, other forms of entertainment, the more you can do to understand exactly why fans care so deeply about that thing, the the more successful you're likely to be in, in whatever you do um, to activate around that that passion. Tell me tell me about the gaming fan or the eSports fan, and is there a, a difference between the fan that's watching Ninja or other streamers versus a fan that's watching teams participate in a League of Legends or Call of Duty uh, 
tournament World Cup matchup. Talk about gaming. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, esports. Again, when you ask yourself that question, why fans are fans? When you look at esports fans, uh, what we found was, again, the research that I love is a research that on the face of it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> and then you start thinking about it, and it makes all the sense in the world. And we, we had one of those epiphany moments around esports when we realized that the, when you look at traditional sports, the sport that is closest to esports fans and why they care so passionately about esports on the traditional sports side, it's actually golf fans. And huh. you think to yourself, huh, exactly. That's <laughs> what you think to yourself. All right, you're going to have to explain huh. that one. Okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's all about participation and wanting to improve. And that's why they're watching these streamers. It's why they're watching these competitions. It's all about how do I level up? How do I improve as an esports player in a very similar way to uh, golf fans wanting to, you know, become better golfers? It's it's that love of the game, but it's how do I how do I improve? How, how do I get better as as a player? So it's it's a participation driven um, connection to to that sport. So yeah, it's. It's, uh, it, again, from a brand perspective, understanding that and using that key insight to then think about how do we engage consumers using uh, esports in a way that's relevant and compelling to the fans is it starts with why fans are fans. Um, I'll give you another example of one of those huh moments. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. <laughs> Well, it's going, to, it's going back to the female fans, because um, what we found with the NFL was that female fans are actually more tribal than male fans. Hmm. The team devotion is actually stronger with female fans than male fans, because male fans typically have a lot more connection points to the sport rather than just connecting through my team. Whereas you look at the female fans and it is laser focused on uh, that team devotion factor that really drives their love of the sport. So again, if we think from a brand perspective, you might think that if you're a brand that's targeting female consumers, you know, do I really need the IP of, of NFL teams or you know, can I just use generic football imagery? And I would make the argument that you need those authentic jerseys and logos in your you know, 30 second spot or your print or your in-store more if you're targeting female consumers than if you're actually targeting male consumers. So again, it's one of those findings that you're like, huh, and then you start to think about it. And again, it makes all the sense in the world what initially at first blush looks like a very counterintuitive finding. Hmm. Really interesting. Is the, is there 
uh, or have there been many changes in why fans are fans? I mean, technology and other when social platforms and other ways to connect with, engage with, ha- have advanced you know, in, in enormous terms ter- over the last 10 years, but are, are the fans different or are the fans the same? Um, I think the, the, there's two questions implicit in that is, are the fans different? And I would say, in terms of why fans are fans, they're very similar. Okay. Especially for mature sports like the NFL in the U.S., I think you you start to see differences for uh, sports that are still developing, and I, I put soccer in that camp in the U.S. Where, um, to your point earlier, we're starting to get to that cradle to grave mentality with with the success of MLS and the continued growth of MLS. Certainly in those MLS markets, uh, we're starting to see a much more mature. Uh, football market relationships are a more European model, if you will, in terms of why fans are fans. But for the mature sports in the U.S., I think why fans are fans are, are pretty stable. But I think when you look at how fans are fans, mm. that's when we're seeing you know big changes because all of these technologies, all of these alternative ways in which you connect with sports are expanding exponentially. So, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you know, there there were only really five ways you could be a fan. You could go to the games, you could play the sport, you could watch it on TV, you could read about it in print media, or you could listen to it on the radio. And now, you know, with digital platforms, social media, fantasy that we talked about, um, gaming... There are now so many different ways in which, as a football fan or a hockey fan or a baseball fan or a basketball fan, you can indulge your passion for that sport. Um, so how fans are changing and almost changing on a season-by-season basis as new ways that fans can engage with their team, with their players, with other fans, um, the access that technology, mobile devices affords fans, so you're creating uh, new consumption locations, so you're no longer tied to your television or the TV in the bar, but you know you can watch uh, an English live game uh, standing on a deck in a Vermont ski house or listen to a cricket game from Australia no matter where you are in the world. And, you know, that ability for technology to provide access and opportunity for fans to feed their passion rather than being dependent on, you know, whatever the broadcast network or the cable channel chooses to show has fundamentally changed, you know, the value proposition of, of, of fans. that um, They're now in control of their own destiny. And um, that's, Great from a fan perspective, it's it's troubling from a brand perspective mm. because uh, you know with that level of fragmentation, it becomes more and more difficult for brands to realize the potential of of, of a sports fan base or a team's fan base if if they're 
now uh, feeding their passion in multiple different ways across multiple different platforms at all hours of the day. So uh, there was something to be said for the old model, <laughs> if you're a fan. Um, but from a fan perspective, uh, it, it's it's a great it's a great time to be a fan. I've always been curious and wondering if you've if you've studied this too. Tell me why fans are fans of boxing or MMA. Uh, you want me to go back to Jurassic period? <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly I mean, see, we've certainly seen a change in recent years of uh, from, from boxing to MMA. And I, is it is is it a combat piece? Is it a one to one? What's the 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 active aspect think, of it? Yeah, I think I think human nature being what it is. You know, you look back in history, and boxing was always incredibly popular. I mean, you know, they were able to fill arenas and stadium, and, you know, looking historically, boxing was always one of the most popular sports in the U.S. The issue became when all of the best content got put behind paywalls, mm. and it was no longer on you know, the major networks. Interesting, yeah. You know, as with any sport, if you restrict access to live content at a, at a mass level, then the cultural relevance and the societal value of being a fan of that particular sport diminishes and diminishes to the point where, you know, boxing had almost lost relevance hmm. because it was no longer accessible to many of those fans of the sport. Uh, and I think, again, going back to technology, you know, with the proliferation of uh, more and more channels and more and more digital platforms that allowed uh, humans to satisfy that base or urge to see one man against another or one female against another and may the best man win, um, I think that's helped uh, drive the popularity of MMA. It's uh, led to a resurgence in boxing. And, um, and you know, I think it just satisfies that, that, that primal need that mankind has to see... Uh, Who's going to prevail in a in a, a battle uh, between two people? It's interesting, though, that in coming to that conclusion, that the demise of boxing sounds like maybe it was less about what a fan did and more about what a sport did to itself to restrict it for a fan. Just a, an interesting way. I've never looked at it that way. How about how about an example? Yeah, well, go I, ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, David, one thing there is, you know, it's a challenge that all rights holders face. Oftentimes, you know, when they're doing media deals, um, you as a rights holder are, are left with that trade-off of, you know, oftentimes the people who are offering the most money to you are the people who are going to put that content behind a paywall. Yep. So I'd be better off taking... The bigger check, knowing that you're going to reach less fans and you are not going to be building your sport, 
as effectively as if you do a deal with a free-to-air carrier that may be offering significantly less money but is going to provide the exposure to to your sport, your league, and and, and the connection to your fans because at the end of the day, it's, it's the live events that you know, drive interest and, and create relevance for your content. Mm. And if you could pick one or two, either uh, an athlete, an artist, uh, talent, team, league, property, brand, if you could pick an example or two that really pop, that they've, they've figured out their brand, they know why, why excuse me, they've figured out their fan and why those are fans of them and, and how to work with them and engage to the best? Yeah, I'm, as, as all fans, uh, I'm going to let emotion maybe take the better of, uh, of, of rational thoughts here and, uh, and speak to the Premier League. I think what they've done here in the U.S. and, and what NBC has done with that property in the U.S. is fascinating. I mean, they've created a live uh, viewing window for sports fans that didn't exist. You know, the Saturday morning and that Sunday morning appointment viewing, which also happens to coincide with, you know, a lead into all of those youth soccer games on Saturday mornings and Saturday afternoons. They've created appointment viewing. They've understood what it is about these uh, iconic English clubs and um, have tapped into um, the the um, the intersection between the passion that American sports fans have for soccer because they grew up playing the sport and the history and tradition of, of, of these iconic clubs and have created and tied it all in with um, appointment viewing to, to drive viewership in a window that, as I said, was previously just not a live sports viewership window. And now they've extended it into these, you know, fan fests, and you're getting 10, 20, I don't know how many thousand people they had at the, the last event they had up in Boston at the end of last season. And to me, you know, that is a, is a fantastic success story of, of understanding your audience and, and creating content and then extending it to, to a live event. And, um, yeah, I think what NBC has done with that property is, 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 is a great success story. And it's also something that U.S. leagues can learn from as well, um, you know, when you think about um, the, the major leagues are all trying to grow their global fan base and, you know, clearly by having early games uh, here in the U.S., um, you know, noon tip-offs in the NBA or, you know, ha- having games in Europe themselves to drive viewership in Europe to grow the game because it's really hard to grow the game when you're live events are kicking off at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., if you can either put them in in prime time in key markets or get creative with scheduling. So, 
you know, in the case of hockey, you know, if you put on a late game on the West Coast and now they've got a team in Vegas, you know, there are no clocks in Vegas. So, you know, having a having a hockey game in, you know, the the Golden Knights playing at, you know, nine thirty or ten o'clock. You know, in Eastern Europe and Russia, you know, that's that's breakfast time. So a Friday night game is Saturday morning viewership. A Saturday night game would be Sunday morning viewership, and boom, you've created the exact same model that we've seen be so successful with the Premier League here in the U.S. for an American league in, you know, Eastern Europe. So uh, I think there's... I forget what the original question was, to be honest, David, but, I, you know, <laughs> as with all things, you know, there's, there's great learnings to be had from, from success stories. And that's The Bond. There's plenty more to come. <laughs> <laughs>